Hello and welcome to the Rising Edge DNO podcast, available on all podcast apps and co-hosted by me, Richard Kutcher. Our regular host, Owen Dacey, head of claims at Rising Edge, is actually also our interview subject today as well, so I'm not going to make him do a preview and lessons learnt as usual. In our last two episodes, we have given you the inside track from a litigation funder and a broker, and now we are going to dive into the world of claims adjusting and what is going on at the insurer when a claim gets into motion. So, Owen, what are we talking about with regards to claims adjusting, and why do you think we should be talking about it? The idea, basically, we're talking about the process and what is going on on the insurer side when there is a claim, and obviously that involves claims adjuster. And the insurer, the claims adjuster, were just one part of this kind of claims ecosystem, if you like. The other parts are the insured, who are normally the defendants, brokers, claimants, funders, regulators, mediators. And then when there's a claim that our lives sort of collide and um, we're on the other side of of each other, or in the case of insured and insurer, on the same side. So everyone comes in with their own sort of motivations, objectives, perspectives, and we all want the process to be as efficient as possible, right? So our view is the better you understand the needs, objectives, processes, whatever on the other side, um, the more efficient the process can be. So the hope is and the idea is today that I can share the inside track, if you like, on what is going on within the insurer on the claims adjuster side to increase that understanding and awareness for those who aren't familiar with that that side of uh, things. So when there is a claim, it might assist with making it a more efficient process and i think it's yeah. important to emphasize as well that we're talking generally here aren't we yeah. we're not talking specifically yeah. maybe about rising edge yeah absolutely so every insurer will be slightly different in terms of processes it might vary a bit when you're dealing with lloyds but i think most of the principles are are applicable generally speaking yeah okay so let's let's go then to the beginning of, of the process the insured uh, receives a claim from a third party walk us through what happens next so most commonly the first port of call for the client will be their insurance broker. Um, I'm probably just going to leave that there because we, we might come back to the inside track on that side of things in a, in a later podcast. But most commonly thereafter, the broker will be the party who writes the formal notification to the insurer. They'll send an email enclosing all of the claim documents. Now, most insurers have a, a generic inbox where these notifications go. And in many instances, those documents, they fly off to an offshore service center, for example, in, in Poland or India, and you have a, a data input process will occur. The claim goes on the system, gets matched to a policy. There's an automatic acknowledgement email that normally goes out with a, with a claim reference number. And then sort of by magic, a task will appear in the relevant team manager's name and, and the claim gets delegated from there to the, to the claims adjuster within the insurer. So what is it then? It's been delegated to a, a claims adjuster. What is the claims adjuster looking at when they receive the claim or, or notification of the claim? Yeah, so I, it's not rocket science. I'm going to keep it simple. If it's, if it's a notification of circumstances that might lead to a claim, as opposed to a claim, all you're doing really is reviewing that information that's been provided and assessing whether it answers the question from the information provided, do I have enough information to understand and accept the basis on which it is considered likely possible that this will lead to a claim in future. And you know, policies will have conditions in there regarding the level of information that is required. Um, and so you're just asking that question, has that been satisfied? Normally you need stuff, it's simple stuff like people involved, dates, relevant documents and another important thing why is it considered likely or possible that this set of circumstances might lead to a covered claim because you have to remember that often the the adjuster 
is one or two removed from the underlying situation, the dispute. So they can't really assume anything. So I think what if all of that is ticked off in one go in that initial um, notice, it, it can be so easy and straightforward and quick. If it isn't, on the other hand, I'd say generally expect a response asking for that stuff, and then then some back and forth can ensue. Unfortunately. So in, in that in that situation, though, and if it's uh, if you haven't got enough information, is, is it a bit of a fact finding mission for you? Yeah. That you're asking going back to the broker, going back to the client for asking for to fill in the gaps if there are gaps in any information provided. Exactly. All you all you're doing is you're looking to gather the information that allows you to tick that box saying that has satisfied what what. What we need to be able to understand that why this might lead to a claim exactly and sort of moving on to a notification of a claim if it's an actual claim again it's fairly simple that all we're looking at does that claim trigger an insuring clause and that is always a very fact-specific assessment by reference to whatever the divine terms of the policy are and of course and no one likes to talk about this i don't even like talking about it but you've got to make sure obviously that no exclusions apply but i think when you look at the market and the people that do this best the best insurers best claims teams out there generally the approach they take is always they're looking for a way to cover it as opposed as opposed to a way to deny it if you see what i mean so that's that's the mindset anyway that, that you should have going into it well that should be good to hear for, for clients <laughs> yeah. and brokers to hear, hear, hear you saying that what are the most common recurring issues then at, at this stage that could lead to inefficiencies in in kind of dealing with the claim and that process and, and what are the most common bits of information that you you see requested for, for further info on on dno claims yeah so for notifications of circumstances i've touched on it but it's just always almost always that the difficulty is just lack of information or explanation so the insurer will need this they will request it and then you you can get into a bit of a back and forth but as i said if it's if it's provided at the outset you avoid that and as i said it can be it can be so simple it's just an acceptance (laughs) saying and i've seen i've seen sort of many instances where the request might go back and then there's a long period of silence ensues and sometimes years and there might be a good reason for that they might just want not want to deal with it or they might want to leave it as it is and that's that's fine so i understand that but all it does in one sense is it kind of leaves ambiguity with how it's been handled by the insurer so is it accepted and do you actually have the comfort that it's going to be tie back in future if there is a claim yeah because i presume the insurer also wants to have some certainty if they're going to have a claim on their hands yeah. or not so if they go back to requesting for information and it goes silence you'd be forgiven for thinking the claim's not going to well, yeah, and I think, yeah, it's how come, again, we're trying to get to a situation where there's just as much certainty on both sides of the fence about how it's being treated and what's what's been notified, yeah. Okay, and uh, notifications of, of claims themselves then? Yeah, so I'll run through some things that I think most insurers will always ask for, so again, it's good to, good to get this in with the first notice. Copy of the complaint. I don't know, that sounds surprising, but that does happen sometimes. You, you actually find yourself asking for a copy of the claim. Secondly, is the company indemnifying the director in the DNO context? So if the DNO is a defendant, and we need this to determine the relevant insuring clause, basically. So again, it, this can go unanswered for months and years, and, and unfortunately, we can't assume anything. We're not always party to what's gone on between the director and the company and what's been agreed so we need to kind of tick that box if you like thirdly it's a simple one details of the lawyers defense lawyers the team assigned to the matter but not just that their rates the work they're proposing to do initially the budget we always always need this and we'll come come back to that later and some you know initial views on merits and strategy 
kind of the backstory bit. I'd say be wary of, in some cases, there might be multiple policies responding as well. So most insurers will always ask for those the details of those policies and their responses. So that can be worked out. Is there an, is there, is an example of that in series one of this podcast? We talked about cyber and obviously we, I think we mentioned in that that there yeah. can be an overlap between yeah. if, if they've got a cyber policy, they've got a DNO policy, they, they yeah. could be from what the same instant, both policies could be talking yeah, to that. Absolutely. So again, it's not for the adjuster. All you're trying to do is gather all the facts so that you can then make an informed decision, make the right decision about what, what the response should be. So yeah, be ready for that. Finally, probably the most common, uh, probably the most common, yeah, and it's critical is just the the date of first awareness and the date claim was first made. So we're dealing with policies that respond to claims first made and notified during a, a policy period. So it's quite common, and I've seen it again multiple times, where you, you look and think, God, this has been, looks like it's been going on for a while before it's notified. And, and so I think, again, it's not a case of looking for a way to get out. It's more a case of just need to check that box and... The way to the best way to do it is probably just by way of an explanation with with the first notice, because then again you're like, oh, okay, I understand now why it wasn't, and, and all the rest of it, and you kind of save time that way. We heard, I think it was episode five uh, from Richard Berger about obviously the insurers uh, will know good lawyers that can help yeah. you, and in getting ahead of it, will actually could could bring down the claim in the long run if you yeah. get ahead of it and get the right support at the right time. Absolutely, yeah, no, that's that's ex- yeah, exactly right, and I think clients vary in their sophistication. Some will, will have it all lined up, others won't, and yeah, if you if you're for clients who who, who haven't got everything lined up, that early contact. Um, can be invaluable yes like you say we know lots of defense lawyers we know we've got um, track record with people so we we know which ones um, we we can recommend so yeah wrapping that all up in terms of 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 just providing some context as to what why the adjusters need to kind of bottom out some of these points you just have to remember that insurers are highly regulated and, and audited entities and adjusters are having their files audited by by reference to certain critical criteria if you like and so this is really what's driving that initial front load request for information to assess and confirm coverage. So what are some of the more more common uh, or complicating coverage issues or questions that can arise that need to be worked out at this stage that maybe clients uh, or brokers should be aware of? For claims or circumstances, um, firstly, we touched on it, other policies that are potentially responding, that, that can be a complicating factor that just needs to be worked out as early as possible. Secondly, we touched on that again, the claim pre, claim might predate the inception of the policy. Again, it's a case of working out why and how and getting the information together and then making a decision on it. Because often there's, and again, I've seen it so many times, there's often good reasons why things get notified when they do. So it's just working it out. Thirdly, the claim might involve covered and non-covered defendants in the DNO context, but they might have the same lawyer. So at that point, you're agreeing, you have to work out an allocation, basically, for things that are covered and not covered. Fourthly, people being sued in non-insured capacity. Again, I've seen that fairly commonly. Fifthly, and, and this is probably something that might I, I, I foresee as kind of being maybe a more common issue that's coming up because of the hard market we've had or that we're in, and that's retroactive dates. So there's, there's a lot of changeover in terms of primary insurers we've seen. And so you're seeing more commonly um, retroactive dates on policy policies. And so I've seen multiple claims in the past where you have 
claims where the acts complained of. Some of them are prior to the retroactive date, not covered. Some of them are after the <laughs> retroactive date covered. And so um, that that is an issue that, that can come up and, and obviously needs to be worked out as well. And then a classic on DNO claims as well, again, is just aggregation. So you might have multiple kind of similar claims relating to the same issue or event, and you're trying to work out do they aggregate um, as a single claim. Sounds like a bit of a headache if uh, if you've particularly if you combine some of those issues. Mm. So you've got maybe there was you know the, the retroactive date there was a different insurer yeah. different periods yeah. and it might be multiple claims relating yeah. to the same issue. Yeah. That sounds like a, a difficult web to untangle. Yeah, I mean, I, I, when you're just it's a good point. I'm, when you're running through that, I'm thinking immediately of SPACs, and I'm thinking these are you could I I can see with the way that SPACs are structured and the way the insurance is structured around it that you can actually see a lot of these things coming together in one in one hit yeah and it is difficult to untangle but again it's just about the key thing for the the adjuster wants to do is to identify and deal with them as early as possible because obviously if you're on the you're on the insurer you're on the insured side you want these things resolved as quickly as possible so you can get on and deal with the claim i guess yeah. the, the, one of the other ones you haven't mentioned yeah. yet which is the big one that the e-word the, ex, the exclusion yeah um, possibility so again it's just i think no one likes talking about it but it, you know you do see situations where they do apply or, or it's a, maybe it's a specific matters exclusion or whatever for me it's always been a case of the way i've always been taught to deal with it is you have to you have to address it and you have to do it early ideally you would do it in person or or by phone or whatever whatever you do um you know in this current environment but you hit it early but you don't close the door you always have that um, conversation or, or you provide the insured with an opportunity to have their say on it and then and then you hear them out on it and you work it out so those are all the kind of coverage issues the more practical and we haven't even finished <laughs> it, it should be it should be straightforward it can be but these are the complicating factors other more practical issues you might have multiple insured persons with with conflicts and therefore multiple defense firms all you know with a single limit or something like that so um, that, that that we need to work that out times when the entity or the insured is insolvent and sometimes you get we get insured versus insured claims as well which which um can be just a bit more nuanced you know you have to be a bit more nuanced with how you deal with it on the insurer side so you've got the claim or the notification of the claim you you're now uh, happy and comfortable that you understand what it is and whether or not you it applies what what are the next steps then yeah, so ideally you have a letter or email to the insured broker and it's confirming cover and then setting out next steps that are proposed. So, but as you can see, there's a myriad of issues that can come up. So the initial behaviours and, and things that we're doing are, are trying to get those points sorted, agreed, or, or even sometimes just left there because, you know, it doesn't need to go any further and we, we move on. But working on the basis it is triggered and no exclusions apply, it's just all about, for the adjuster, it's about laying the foundations for interactions how we're going to work together and personally I, I i like many others i think as well like to meet defense counsel meet the insured have that initial call with them i would say to people expect that to be a common request if you do have a claim sometimes this can be a good forum for setting out our expectations or requests most important sort of general points at this stage what is the anticipated time scale of events what's happening when reporting the format and structure of that reporting how often are we meeting up? When? What will the format be? Who needs to be there? And most most insurers, as well, in my experience, they like to get a feel and initial view on strategy and merits early on, in the knowledge that um, it's not always possible to give a detailed, really meaningful analysis. But you like to get a bit of a backstory because they're trying to get the exposure. And so this, yeah, that initial call is just about opening up a line of communication, 
making sure everyone's aware of who everyone else is and, and what their role is, really. I think you've touched on it there at the end, but yeah. what, what's the purpose of all of that kind of uh, prep work? Why do all of that work up front, kind of front-loading it? Yeah, that brings us on really to some in, some of the insider points, if you like. And these points are about what's going on within the insurer that might be helpful to, to insurers and brokers. It comes down to a few things. The first is around just providing service. And the second is around what's going on internally and the internal processes that adjuster is kind of involved with and the stakeholders they're managing. So taking that first service point, claims is, of course, it's customer service. You are there to service the customer in their their time of need, essentially. And a lot of people I know, they like uh, what they do in claims because actually it's a role where you feel like you can actually help people. So it sounds a bit trite, but I think it's true. And so other than that first confirmation of coverage, which which is the first critical stage, as a service provider, you want to be there ready and quick to respond at any stage when when decisions need to be made so it might be general strategy it might be a specific thing like a an application or or settlement authority so for me providing the good service is about being there at those points and being quick and supportive so all of that front loading with the exchange of information meetings with defense counsel setting out what you need early this is all so that when that decision needs to be made you're kind of ready to go. And then that's the first one, really. And then the internal processes a claims adjuster is dealing with. You've got reserve, reserving exp- and exposure assessment and then kind of in, uh, internal stakeholders they're managing. So in reserving, in long-tail lines of business, such as DNO, after servicing the client, I think one of the very most important jobs of an adjuster is to, is to assess, test, recommend... Um, enter an accurate financial reserve as soon as possible so it's simple really the earlier you can do this and the more accurate you are with doing that the earlier and more accurately you can assess profitability of a book of business and so as an adjuster you can go some extent to some extent on experience but you need that engagement that advice um, you need that telephone call with defense counsel and the insured to discuss the other side the judge the court the the damages analysis so you all your behaviors sort of driving trying to trying to get to that point of understanding the exposure uh, and of course talking to the insured themselves because it's their defense after all so that's reserving and then the internal processes i could just run through quickly what how it kind of works within the within most claims organizations i've seen and again it will vary the financial authorities are delegated down the claims department hierarchy so each claims handler has got a certain financial authority and it will vary a lot depending on the company but then the process for getting things approved that are above that financial authority varies again but generally it's it's something like this so if it's within the authority it's easy it's just a matter of getting the information and noting the justification on the file and then that that just entering the reserve you're good to go but I, I think anything above that of financial authority that the adjuster has maybe say at the sort of one million level you might then be dealing with kind of first level management and in that situation it might just be an email report to a manager and they they sit down and discuss it it gets agreed and then when you move into that one million above territory, 5 million, 10 million, 20 million, it can involve a lot of people and actually you can involve people within the business who are obviously very senior, but might not be a financial lines or a DNA person. Yeah. And the process would normally be some sort of internal report, which will knock off background coverage, liability, status, li- um, damages analysis, etc. And so that will normally be followed by an in-person roundtable. Again, it can sort of it can involve four, five, six people 
who come into it fresh. And I, I only make this point, and I think it's an important one to make, just because that is what they're, that justice is dealing with internally, and that is what is driving their actions, requests, behaviours, because they need to be able to provide that recommendation internally in kind of a, an orderly and kind of succinct matter with all that information there. Because you're looking for all that information so you can report, if you need to, report accurately back up the chain, so to speak, internally to make sure that whatever you're recommending, they understand why you're recommending it and why that's the right decision. Exactly, yeah. So I think you've highlighted there lots of possibilities or opportunities for things to go wrong. If things do go wrong, what is the cause? What what happens that can, can make life difficult for everyone involved? I think aside from the coverage issues, which I think the the way in which you deal um, with the coverage issues can actually ha- have a real impact, because I think if you deal with it in a kind of with empathy and in a in a in an open fashion, then even coverage issues that are not favourable to an insured can can be dealt with, and it's and everyone's okay with that. But I think when it can go awry, I think is just when there's simply when there's a lack of engagement or sharing of information on on either side. So I'll start with the insurer side first, because obviously we're not perfect at all. I see this, and I think this is sometimes an issue not not requesting not demanding those meetings with defense counsel and just kind of expecting the information to come to you and that doesn't happen if you don't demand it so then expect to be surprised and expect to be the one causing the delay when there's a critical decision to be made and then on on the defense side i I should add this is much less common than when it is when it it mostly it normally goes well but when it goes wrong there it's normally when there there is a reluctance or maybe a complete refusal to actually provide any kind of meaningful analysis on that that all those points i'm talking about what the adjuster needs to do to have in terms of reporting up and the other thing is most people be aware of this but insurers don't like surprises uh, actuaries don't like surprises so so again something that the the claims adjusters dealing with internally is is, is managing expectations all the time so um, last minute late changes on the on assessment can cause an issue but this again comes down to early engagement and that that managing expectations in the outset because you might disagree, and of course people disagree all the time on, on things, but if you do disagree, then if you're doing it early, then you should have worked it out by the time you actually need to make that decision. So, and then I don't want to bash lawyers loads because most of them are really good. And, but, and we had lots of them on the, on the, on the yeah, podcast yeah, series. Yeah, yeah I, I'm, sort of a, I'm a sort of a lawyer as well. But lawyers who complicate when it comes to reporting and, and who can't present matters in a kind of user-friendly, organised fashion. I still think it's amazing we still see that. And again, it feeds into what the adjuster needs to kind of report up on. It's important to understand what the client wants and how they want it and then tailor to that. And this can just cause delay because if it's not presented in a, in a kind of user-friendly way that can be digested easily, then it's, it's just going to lead to more questions and more delay. And then finally, again, it's so, it's unfortunately so common that it's, it's so easily fixed and it's just lack of consent and, and presenting bills when there hasn't been anything agreed in terms of a budget or the work that's going to be done. But again, you, you, most of the time you work it out. But, but even as you said, like as you said earlier, a lot of those issues seems like they can be avoided by that early engagement, by uh, kind of transparency up front, by having the facts information and everyone on side, including defense counsel, the insurer, the the client whoever else needs to be involved having them around that table for those yeah. those regular meetings absolutely yeah even even with the cost side of things you know things can rack up very quickly and can be very expensive but i think as long as there's always that time just to tell people why and it's changed because of this and we need to do this then nine times out of ten it just gets agreed and it will get paid quicker so just the expectation management yeah, again absolutely yeah <laughs> 
so I think you've, you've run through all of that re- really detailed and I think that's been really really informative for, for listeners if, if they weren't aware of some of those kind of particularly that kind of behind the scenes internal issues what's going through your head or, or your fellow uh, claims adjusters just run us through then high level key points people need to consider when dealing with a claims adjuster or, or an insurance mm-hmm. claim so a claims person adjuster as I've said it's a service role so that adjuster is thinking about the client and servicing them and there's five kind of key moments on the claim and everything a good adjuster is doing and requesting is because they're trying to deal with these issues and points as efficiently as possible and in my experience you get these things right it does work so coverage response firstly setting a budget strategy kind of authority generally settlement authority and then payment so it's just highlighting those things to people to say this is really what we're we're we're, is driving us to try and get these these things sorted and remember i just say the insurer doesn't won't or can't pay a penny until that reserve is in so that's why it's key to get those kind of financial exposure assessments issued and resolved and then i would say this is i don't want this to be a violence violence moment at all because that's not the intention but it's just a reality is that unfortunately a lot of adjusters and a lot of insurers have hundreds and hundreds of claims probably far too many claims and of course it's their job to kind of prioritize and manage their claims and tasks but um, this feeds into why you want that efficient front-loaded exchange because and an early close engagement remember also that claims adjusters might have a financial authority that is lower than the value of claims so they're ma- again i'll be touching it but they're managing up and they're managing internal ex- internal stakeholders and they might be reporting up to non-specialists and people with who don't know anything about the claim so they're dealing with reams and reams of, of complex information hundreds of claims and they need to report up in a succinct manner with certain key bits of, of information we've touched on before like budgets merits timescales damages strategy economic analysis you know the kind of cost benefit side of things and it's always the same you know it doesn't it doesn't vary that much and just finally, I'd say, you know, as, as the one with the checkbook, I think it's, it is incumbent on the adjuster and the insurer to be the one that's driving all of this. Um, and that's, that's kind of the value add, if you like. And of course, the experience you bring when it comes to settlement and mediation. But yeah, I would just recommend trying to get to know your insurer's claims department and the, and the person, the managers, understanding that structure of that team, how it operates, as all that knowledge, I think, will be valuable. You know, unfortunately, if you do have a claim. Well, Owen, that has been really interesting and I'm sure listeners will have found it helpful to know the mechanics or the the secret source, if you will, with regards to how insurers are reacting and and the steps they are taking after receiving a DNO claim notification. It was certainly useful for me to hear some of that because as a genuine outsider of the insurance industry, I don't really know how any of this actually works in in reality. So it was good to, to hear that insight. Next up, we're going to be heading into our final topic of the series, two-parter on litigation in respect of mitigation in trying to prevent litigation in the first place quite a mouthful and then on litigation strategies and tactics we won't give away too much now uh, because we'll do that in the intro for those episodes but a really fascinating one for listeners to tune into and to finish off the season isn't it Owen? Yeah absolutely Richard Um, as you said some insights into the world of litigation and just some some really amazing uh, lessons from people who are just involved in litigation every day so they 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 bring that expertise yeah it's a fantastic one 
yeah uh so do make sure as ever uh sick of hearing me say it i'm sure that you are subscribed or following the rising edge dno podcast on any podcast app you can also listen on the rising edge website as well and there are links in the episode show notes and do please uh tell your colleagues and and your peers in the insurance industry about a fantastic dno podcast until then owen uh we'll take care and we'll see you for the next the last couple of episodes thanks richard see you next time